You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this morning to the Acts of the Apostles. We have come in our series to chapter 18, verse 18. And our reading, as well as in a way our text, extends to chapter 19, verse 22. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, And there he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish 
chief priests were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you can say that for the last number of weeks and months, we have been touring, as it were, with the Apostle Paul. Specifically, we've been touring the area around the Mediterranean Sea. Even more specifically, we have been touring around the Aegean Sea. And there we have stopped at places like Kevala, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. In other words, we have been both in the north as well as in the south of Greece. Today, however, we're going to get on the tour boat, so to speak, and we're going to sail east through the Greek islands to the city of Ephesus. Oh, and by the way, if you ever have the opportunity to see some of the Greek islands and stop off at Ephesus, make sure that you do so. This isn't a commercial, but the islands of Mykonos, Santorini, Crete, Rhodes, Lindos, and others are a delight to see, and as is Ephesus as well. Some of the best ruins in the world, certainly in the Mediterranean, are to be found in this ancient place. But of course, when these events in the book of Acts took place, the city of Ephesus was far from being a ruin. It was located on the water, whereas these days it's located a number of kilometers into the interior. It was a bustling city of some 300,000 people, whereas today no one lives there, except probably some security guards. And then it was one of the great cities of the world, and today it is nothing more than a vast open-air museum. In addition, in Paul's day, Ephesus was also something else. It was the religious center of the ancient world. If Athens was the intellectual center and if Corinth was the commercial center, then Ephesus was all about religion. In it you could find, for example, the great temple of Artemis or Diana, a complex four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Why, if that structure was still standing today, no doubt there would be even more tourists going to Ephesus. But in any case, the Apostle Paul makes this his next stop. 
He's going to Ephesus with its huge temple, with its cult of Artemis or Diana and its lesser cults as well, with all of its magic arts and sorcery and divination and practices, anything and everything religious or superstitious could be found in Ephesus. But still, beloved, we need to remember one more thing, and that is, if Paul is going to Ephesus, this means really, and we've seen that a number of times now, Jesus Christ is also going to Ephesus. For wherever he goes, wherever Paul goes, there goes Christ, there goes his gospel, his name, his salvation, and also his church. So how will Christ fare in Ephesus? Let's turn to our text and see, I preach to you on the following theme, Christ invades Ephesus, and we're going to see he does so by using, first of all, his servants, secondly, his spirit, and finally, his power. Now, beloved, we don't have time to look at every detail in this rather large scripture reading, but we should pay attention to some of its special features. And so then the first thing that I would like you to consider is here the diversity of people that Christ uses to spread the gospel in Ephesus. The first one that comes to mind is a man by the name of Apollos. Apollos, as you can read, is a Jew. He was born in Alexandria where there is a large Jewish community. He's also described as being a learned man in that he was very familiar with the scriptures. And he also knew about Jesus because he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And here the Lord means the Lord Jesus Christ. It also says that he taught about Jesus accurately. Oh, and take note, too, of the fact that Apollos spoke with great fervor. Please note in this connection the fact that there's a little italicized note at the bottom of the text of your Bible which says, with fervor in the Spirit. Now, there's some scholarly debate about whether or not these words belong in the main text or whether they belong at the bottom, as you find them in the Niv translation. There's also a debate about whether the word spirit refers to the spirit of Apollos or to the Holy Spirit. So is it the little s or is it a big s? Well, beloved, in both cases, I would say this comment about fervor really belongs in the main text. And we're really speaking here about the Holy Spirit. Apollos was full of the fervor of the Holy Spirit. So you can see the picture that emerges is of a man who is highly skilled, educated in the gospel, and full of enthusiasm. Rather impressive qualities. Yet one more thing needs to be added to his character sketch, and that is Apollos was a man who knew his way with words. Verse 26 tells us that he spoke boldly. Verse 28 states that he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate. So obviously, Apollos was also a great speaker, preacher, and debater. Everyone, you might say, would want him on their side. He seems to be the perfect servant. 
Only such an assessment of perfection would be going a bit too far, for notice Apollos also has a flaw. You find it in verse 25, there it says that he knew only the baptism of John. Here then is a super able man who is somehow ignorant when it comes to Christian baptism. Somehow he's missed out on the last chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, as well as on the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And somehow, too, he is ignorant of what the Apostle Paul has written in Romans 6, where it speaks about baptism and our union with Christ. And so then, here we have Apollos, gifted, able, persuasive, but somewhat theologically defective. Well, next we have Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team that Paul first met in Corinth. They had gone with him to Ephesus. And if you read the text again, it seems like, in a way, they were the ones who kind of discovered Apollos. They heard him speaking and debating very impressively. They, they also took note of his deficient gospel, however. So what did they do? Did they stand up all of a sudden while Apollos was holding forth and publicly tell him that he didn't have all the goods? Did they tell him that his gospel was incomplete? Did they put him on the defensive and make him a target of their criticism? No. And I like this part. For it says they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of the Lord more adequately. In other words, after they heard him, they said to Apollos, why don't you come with us? They took him home. Maybe they had some wine and cheese. And then they brought him up to speed theologically. No fuss, no bother, no confrontation, Quietly, gently, almost invisibly, they went to work. Yes, and in doing so, they introduce us to a different kind of servant of the gospel. You might say the Lord has his really gifted and obviously talented servants, but he also has other less obvious Servants. Indeed, the less obvious servants are often among the most effective kind. For example, how many of you haven't had or heard of a mother or a grandmother who exercised great influence over her children and grandchildren in her own special quiet manner? How many of you do not have the prayers of your fathers and mothers to thank for the way that you turned out? You see, in the history of the church and of the kingdom of God, there are big names, there are little names, there are famous people, unknown people, great theologians, 
and ordinary believers. And who has the greatest influence? I think it may very well be, in the end, the little people. So if you consider yourself among God's little people, don't despair. Without becoming famous, you may yet be used by the Lord to achieve great things. So, beloved, if the Lord has great servants, little servants, he also has another thing, and that is you might call servants in process. If you look at the beginning of chapter 19, there are some more servants or would-be servants of the Lord. Only after meeting them, the Apostle Paul begins to wonder, and at a certain point he even asks them, Did you, by the way, receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? To which they answer, no. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. When asked about baptism, all they had received was the baptism of John the Baptist. So like Apollos, they had undergone a baptism for the repentance of sins, but no more. Now we might ask, what's this? Who are these people? What kind of people are they? What kind of disciples? If you read the commentaries, some say, well, they're not Christians at all. Others say they are Christians. First, Paul speaks about when you believed. But then if they're Christians, what kind of Christians are they? Well, obviously, they're Christians with a problem. In a way, they have an even bigger problem than Apollos. He had not received Trinitarian baptism, but they had not even received the Holy Spirit. And now I strongly suspect when they had heard about the Holy Spirit or that they had heard about the Holy Spirit in the sense that they knew that the Old Testament spoke about the Spirit of God. And perhaps they had heard about the Spirit in connection with the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they didn't really know about was the Holy Spirit and his subsequent work. Somehow they had missed Trinitarian baptism. Somehow they'd missed Pentecost, believe it or not. Somehow they'd missed out on all the special gifts of the Spirit. These men had missed a lot. Maybe the best thing to say about them is that in some sense they were pre-Pentecost Christians. So what now? What did the Apostle Paul do next? He explained, it says, the gospel to them more fully. And thereafter he baptized them into the name of Jesus, which really means into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then look what happens. It says, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. These men, who were twelve in number, also received the gift of the Spirit. 
What happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost, in Acts 8 at Samaria, in Acts 11 in the household of Cornelius, also happens here in Ephesus. People begin to speak in tongues, which in the book of Acts always means they begin to speak real foreign languages, languages that they had never known, never been taught, never been familiar with. And with those languages, they started to prophesy. So you might ask, what is Christ Jesus doing here? Or else, what is the Spirit of Christ doing here? Is he giving out some kind of second or subsequent blessing as some of the Pentecostals would have us believe? Now, beloved, Christ is also here, gathering his servants together. He's sending his Spirit to confirm them, to equip them so that he might also use them. And if you ask, use them for what? Well, for ministry. For the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, that's another facet of this particular passage of Scripture. It talks about the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And if you look in this text, you'll see a number of noteworthy things. First of all, this ministry of the Spirit is, and that's the ministry in which Paul is involved, and Apollos, and also these newly ordained or installed people who had John's baptism only. This ministry is a dividing ministry. You know, it says Paul came to Ephesus, and and as he always did in all the other places, and we saw that time and time again, he went into the synagogue, and in the synagogue he would preach and explain the scriptures and debate day after day, and he did it for months. And the result was that some of them believed and embraced the gospel, but others refused and began to slander him and the gospel. And the consequence of that, at a certain point, Paul leaves the synagogue. And when he leaves, the gospel leaves with him. You see, there is a sense in which the ministry of the gospel divides its hears. The sword of the Spirit cuts two ways. It either brings you to life or it puts you to death. It either brings you to life in Jesus Christ or it makes you an enemy of Jesus Christ. It divides. The second thing about this ministry of the gospel through the Spirit is that it's a teaching ministry. When Paul leaves the synagogue, he needs to find a new place to teach. And where does he go? Well, it says in verse 9 that he went to a place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. It's an interesting point. Tyrannus is probably not his real name. It's probably his nickname. Tyrannus means tyrant. Probably a name given to him by his students. Probably says something about his personality. 
and his teaching style. In any case, Paul uses his hall. No doubt he rented it. Most likely he used it in those hours of the day when Tyrannus found it too hot and uncomfortable to teach. But be that as it may, for the next two years, the Apostle Paul teaches and teaches in this place. He teaches Jews and Greeks alike. All who come to him here, the gospel being explained and expounded. You see, Paul's ministry is very much a teaching ministry. It's not in the first place a miraculous, healing kind of ministry. It's not a spectacular, headline-creating kind of ministry. No, it's a teaching ministry. Teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know, that brings us to a third thing about this ministry, and that is, you can see, it's also in due time becomes a spreading kind of ministry. It spreads throughout the entire city of Ephesus, throughout the province of Asia. It goes to places like Colossae, Laodicea, Sardis, in due time Rome, even Spain. The Spirit gives wings to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And all in all, what this teaches us is that it's so vital and so fundamental that the church of Jesus Christ be characterized as a teaching church. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here trying somehow to find some way to exert political influence. We're not even here to do social work, as good as that may be. No, the first and the prime duty of the church is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach it, to expound it, to preach it, and proclaim it. That's our calling locally. That's also our task internationally. Now the earth hear his voice. But then also something else, beloved. For as this ministry spreads and goes out, it also comes with some special signs. What kind of signs? Well... Some of them are kind of strange, kind of odd, you might say. Look at verse 12. It speaks about even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, meaning Paul, were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured. Now that makes us wonder, doesn't it? I mean, miracles are fine. Miracles are great. Making the blind see, the lame walk, even the dead to rise, that's, that's all very fine. But you know this business of, of handkerchiefs and, and aprons somehow receiving special power, that, that's kind of far-fetched, isn't it? It may remind some of the older ones of Oral Roberts, the late American faith healer, 
who told people to put their handkerchiefs on their radios when they heard his broadcast, and then afterwards he said those handkerchiefs would have the power to heal them and other people. In short, this really does strike us as far out stuff. And yet, I would remind you that some of the miracles in the scriptures sometimes border on the humanly ridiculous. Take that case in the gospel of the woman who had an issue with blood and all she had to do was touch the hem of Jesus' coat and she was healed. Even more, take the shadow of Peter mentioned in Acts chapter 5. It says there that if Peter walked by and his shadow fell on you, You'd be healed. You see, there are times when the miracles that are worked by God really kind of perplex us. They don't fall into the ordinary character. And you know, that's also here the case in Ephesus. Acts 19.11 speaks of God doing extraordinary miracles. In the Greek, it means not the ordinary kind, not your typical kind of miracle. In other words, it says very clearly, God was doing strange stuff in Ephesus. And why? Why was he doing all of these out-of-the-ordinary miracles? Oh, beloved, I think it has everything to do with context, with, with the city of Ephesus. I told you in the beginning, Ephesus is one of the great religious centers of the world. And in Ephesus, there were all kinds of potions and cures being marketed and hawked and sold. And everyone saw that in Ephesus, you got the be-all and the end-all of religion. But now the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to Ephesus. And what does Christ do through his spirit? He does even more wondrous things. More amazing things than anyone has ever heard of. He shows the people of that city that his gospel is more powerful. That he is more omnipotent. That he's more wonderful. In Ephesus, Christ shows what real spiritual power is all about. Yes, and that's obvious not just from the miracles, but also in other things. You have that strange case of the seven sons of Sceva in the verses 13 to 16. These fellows thought they were on to a a good thing. They thought that if they could use the name of Jesus, they could throw out demons and make lots of extra money. And that's what they were trying to do. But notice one day it backfired. And it backfired in rather spectacular and amazing fashion. They used the name of Jesus... But then the man who has the demon begins to question them. And then somehow he turns on all seven of them, overpowers them, beats them up, strips them naked, 
and sends them home bleeding. Now, what a spectacle that must have been. And what a message. And that's the point. What a message it sends out loud and clear. Don't you dare mess with the name of Jesus Christ. Because there isn't any other name like his name. And you know, that's not the only message making the rounds, because you'll notice something else as well. For not only was a beating meted out to the sons of Sceva, Notice what happens to believers as well. Acts 19.18 tells us that a number of believers come forward and they fess up in rather stunning fashion. They admit that as Christians they had a a sideline. It was called practicing sorcery. And they were making a rather good profit at it. But now, convicted by the Spirit of the Lord, they come forward with their sorcery scrolls filled with spells and incantations worth about 50,000 drachmas or 50,000 pieces of silver. And they burn the whole bunch, all the scrolls, in public. And so what does that show? But surely it shows that our text is not just about the ministry of the gospel. But our text is also about the power of the gospel. It demonstrates so very, very clearly how the word of the Lord can and does change hearts and lives and attitudes and businesses. And it testifies to the fact that the word of the Spirit is no ordinary word. Whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, you need to get ready for surprises. Jesus Christ came to Ephesus. He came through the Spirit. He came to the word of the Spirit, and in the power of the Spirit, he transforms a city and a people. Yes, and you know, he still does that today. Perhaps not exactly in the way that he did it at Ephesus. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is still changing and transforming hearts and lives. You hear about that in Africa, in all different parts of the world, also in China. The word of the God continues to have great power because it comes from a great and glorious Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.